Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our most recent seminar and was recorded in January of 2024. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member here at the Henry George School. To celebrate Black History Month, we wanted to pause our regular content and give our listeners a special series on the political economy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This week's talk will conclude our three-part series exploring Dr. King's intellectual evolution and how it impacted his solutions to addressing poverty. Mr. Dodson attended Shippensburg University and Temple University, where he received an economics degree. Ed worked for Fannie Mae, a public-private partnership to help distribute home mortgage loans. During his time at Fannie Mae, Mr. Dodson held numerous management and analyst positions within the Housing and Community Development Group, helping revitalize neighborhoods and local communities. This gives him an interesting perspective on land use and reform and how it can reduce inequality. He also has extensive experience as a history lecturer at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and the Learning is for Everyone program at Burlington County College. Edward has written many papers on history and the political economy and is the author of a three-volume book series titled The Discovery of First Principles. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. and his contributions to humanity hopefully will set us off in good stead. Um, but what I want to talk about in his, I'm going to give you a good overview of his life, of course. But we know King as the leader in the nonviolent approach to gaining full civil civil liberties and equality of opportunity for persons of color, particularly in the United States. But less appreciated, I think, is his broader concern to end the very existence of poverty. And so that will be the focus of my talk this evening. Well, where did King get his ideas? In his 1967 book titled, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? King was looking ahead to the day when racial discrimination was no longer tolerated. He knew this would not bring an end to poverty, that much more really had to be done. Part of his ideas about ending poverty evolved over several decades, and an unlikely association developed with a journalist-turned-congressional staffer named Walt Rybeck. It was, it was really thanks to King's relationship with Walt that he was introduced to the ideas of Henry George. In his autobiographical book titled Resolving the Economic Puzzle, Walt explains that Coretta Scott King was one of his closest friends while they were students at Antioch College. In Walt's own words, he wrote, she was an aspiring singer before she married Martin Luther King Jr. Hearing her tell about the indignities her family suffered while she was growing up in Alabama was heartbreaking. Black churches around Ohio invited her to sing and I went along as accompanist. Mixed-race couples were seldom seen in those times. We were never physically harmed as we traveled, but if looks could kill. 
We were relieved to reach the churches where the audiences invariably received me with the same warmth as Coretta. Well, after college, Walt began what became a remarkable career as a journalist. He worked for the Dayton Daily News, and there he happened to come across and read Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty. He was soon drawn into the small community of Henry George's scattered around the globe. Then after John F. Kennedy became president, Walt was appointed to the Washington as Washington bureau chief for the Cox newspapers, which put him in the center of action, particularly in the center of action during the civil rights movement and in the environment where Martin Luther King Jr. was making his fame known. Now, how frequently uh, Walt continued to see the Kings in subsequent years, he doesn't say in his book. He only mentions a 1965 luncheon following King's meeting with President Lyndon Johnson. What is clear is that thanks to Walt, King had come to understand that racism was only one cause of generational poverty. It was far from the only cause. Deep changes in the nation's economic system were called for. We had this long history in housing of, of redlining and racial, racial prejudice and King was convinced that the nation's economic system had to be changed fundamentally. There were many people of every race who were born into and remained in poverty all their lives. However, Blacks seem to suffer from the worst institutional disadvantages. The history of land settlement offered a crucial insight into the effects on persons of color, as King observed. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Now, this is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. In that short passage, you know, King really succinctly describes the really destructive policy that the United States government and state governments and local governments inflicted on persons of color in this country. Not only on potions of color, but but certainly to such a large extent that it kept those people from ever becoming fully, fully experiencing their potential as individuals, as human beings. Now, with that, I'm going to go into a little bit of, of King's life. So you, if you don't already know it, this will give you a sense of where he came from and how his thinking evolved. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1929. He attended the Booker T. Washington High School until 1944. 
And then although he had not formally graduated from his high school, he was admitted to Morehouse College. At Morehouse, King was introduced to the writings of Henry David Thoreau. And these had a lasting influence on the direction of his activism. He later wrote, wrote, wrote about his, his readings as follows. He said, during my days, I read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience for the first time. Here in this courageous New Englander's refusal to pay his taxes and his choice of jail rather than support a war that would spread slavery's territory into Mexico, I made my first contact with the theory of nonviolent resistance. He went on to graduate from Morehouse College in 1948 and thereafter entered the Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And now as a student at Crozier, King began to broaden his study of, might, of what might be called the great ideas. And, and about his time there, he wrote as follows. He says, I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking such as it was. And while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from their study. King then determined that he ought to learn something about the communist ideology. Certainly, this was an option that, that was being presented to persons of color and other minorities who were suffering indignities, uh, the United States and other societies. So he read Das Kapital by Karl Marx, as well as the Communist Manifesto. But... As a devout Christian, King rejected the communist interpretation of history. Thus, although he thought Marxist ideology to be without principle and even evil in its fundamental nature, he acknowledged why others might embrace it as a path to escape from longstanding oppressions. And he comments on that as well here. He writes, with all of its false assumptions and evil methods, Communism grew as a protest against the hardships of the underprivileged. Communism, in theory, emphasized a classless society and a concern for social justice, though the world knows from sad experience that in practice it created new classes and a new lexicon of injustice. Thus, to King, the Christian ought always to be challenged by any protest against unfair treatment of the poor. That, in his mind, was part of the Christian doctrine, part of what makes a person a true Christian. Importantly, he comes to the conclusion that capitalism as practiced was inherently unjust and in need of specific reforms. He expressed his concerns in this way. My reading of Marx also convinced me that truth is found neither in Marxism nor in traditional capitalism. Each represents a partial truth. Historically, capitalism failed to see the truth in collective enterprise, and Marxism failed to see the truth in individual enterprise. 19th century capitalism failed to see that life is social, and Marxism failed and still fails to see that life is individual and personal. In Philadelphia, uh, King then heard a sermon by, by Dr. Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard University, uh, who spoke on his recent trip to India and the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. 
Well, Gandhi uh, had a lot to say to King, particularly about the relationship between people and nature and about land. So King immersed himself into a study of Gandhi's life and his works. He came to embrace Gandhi's strategy of nonviolent resistance as the answer to the unfair treatment of persons of color that were, were, were still being practiced in the United States. Well, the question then arose, to what extent was King also influenced by Gandhi's views on reforms and how to end poverty? Uh, Gandhi was an agrarian, and he championed the cause of the landless peasants. He supported the outright confiscation of land from India's large landowners to be distributed free of charge to the poor. It was Gandhi's view that only those who actually worked the land should be permitted to own it. He wrote, land and all properties is his who will work it. So Gandhi obviously understood the evils of absentee lander ownership and of the rentier privilege that existed in India and in other societies. Well, years later, King was able to travel to India to visit Gandhi's place of birth. And in a radio address made just before returning to the United States, here's what he said to the people of India. Since being in India, since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for justice and dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe. And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. So you can see that King's uh, philosophical framework is being broad, broadened constant early on by the studying of the great Western philosophers. Now he's adding uh, Gandhi to that you know, frame of reference to give him uh, his, his basis for his action going forward. In a November 1956 sermon, he presented an imaginary letter from the Apostle Paul to American Christians. And in this imaginary sermon, he says this. Oh, America, how often have you taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth, while others live in abject, deadening poverty. Ed, uh, we are not seeing the slides. Really? Yes. You want what to happened? load them again? Um, did it get turned off somehow? Somehow. I don't know how it happened. All right. Let me go back to the share mechanism and see what happened. How long has that been happening? Uh, just a minute ago, I would say. Okay. Um, host disabled participant screen sharing. Okay. That's what it says. I don't know. My <laughs> computer is very unstable. Let's do this. Okay. You want to try? Um, it still won't allow me to do so. Okay. Hmm. 
Okay, it looks like it's now ready to allow us to go back to sharing. Okay. Uh, can, you, can you now see the uh, screen? Yes. Okay. So that was that was from the sermon. And then the next slide goes to his speech in 1963, uh, where he talked about the poverty that crossed the color line. And this is this is during this period where uh, there was this giant march on Washington trying to make the case with our leading you know political figures that something had to be done to deal with the entrenched poverty that existed in the country. And here's what he said there. To this day, the white poor also su suffer deprivation and the humiliation of poverty, if not of color. It corrupts their lives, frustrates their opportunities, and withers their education. In one sense, it is more evil for them because it has confused so many by prejudice that they have supported their own oppressors. I think mean, this is just a, a remarkably insightful observation that um, I I would I would offer that this affects. A lot of our politics today it is amazing to me how people vote against their own uh, basic interests, uh, not really understanding what their votes are uh, achieving for those that actually seek to oppress them, to keep them down, to keep them from enjoying some level of equality of opportunity in our society. And King saw that clearly. He asked some of the same moral questions raised by others regarding the treatment of nature as private property. And this is perhaps something that was in his mind from his association with Walt Rybeck. He says, you see, my friends, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water. Despite the history of how persons of color were subjected to centuries of unjust law, King looked to government to secure economic rights. The government had to change if that was going to be accomplished. He described capitalism as it existed, as a system that Permits, permitting necessities to be taken from the many to give luxuries to the few. And certainly the statistics tell us today that the concentration of income and wealth in our society is increasing at a, an increasing rate. The reforms he sought were directed toward achieving what political economists described as a just distribution of wealth. Government needed to be pressured to secure and protect economic as well as political rights. As King put it in a 1965 speech to the Negro American Labor Council, the good and just society is neither the thesis of capitalism nor the antithesis of communism, but a socially conscious democracy which reconciles the truths of individualism 
and collectivism. Call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. King observed that in the world of 1963, persons of color were the last hired and the first to be let go, all the more so because of improvements in the efficiency of industrial machinery. He knew and observed that industrialization, automation, all of these processes were allowing us to produce greater and greater output with less and less input of labor. And so this left a major problem in a world where those who are least um, technically trained to fill these new positions were going to be left out. He writes, the nation will also have to find the answer to full employment, including a more imaginative approach than has yet been conceived for neutralizing the perils of automation. Today, as the skilled and semi-skilled Negro attempts to mount the ladder of economic security, he finds himself in competition with the white working man at the very time when automation is scrapping 40,000 jobs a week. That is precisely the delusion which gripped the Inquisition 600 years ago. The notion that temptation could lead people away from the good and correct path, the only path on which they would flourish. But of course, that essentially denies the fundamental implications of free will. And within the specifically Christian context, it denies the implications of uh, Jesus's perhaps most profound statement that my kingdom is not of this world. One conclusion from which might be that we need to pursue philosophical fidelity rather than those things which in this quotidian world might be to our greatest advantage. Um, I spend a lot of time these days working on that particular notion, but I do feel that the, the, the great delusion of the, of the educated of our time is the feeling that what separates them from the deplorables is that the deplorables are too easily tempted into working, acting, voting against their own best interests. Yeah, let me interject that. Um, I would, I would, my my sense is that, it, particularly in the United States, among when you when you talk about who is influenced by ideas that have a grain of truth but aren't perhaps fully truthful, it's everyone, every every strata in society that that uh, how many of us know people who have voted either Democrat or Republican uh, in their family for generations? 
and how many of them really understand what the philosophy of the political party they're supporting really is. Um, you know, it's the same same argument I would I would offer with regard to those who defend uh, gun ownership by bringing the Second Amendment to the Constitution into the discussion without knowing what the Second Amendment of the Constitution says. I mean, uh, 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 but but there you get on very slippery ground. Um, I wrote a I wrote a very long piece about the Second Amendment explaining that it has very little to do with guns. It has to do with the nature of policing. It has to do with the very fact that um, there is no public police. There is no immunization of some sort of class of citizens who exercise police powers, that all policing in a democratic republic like these United States is done by a militia, that is by volunteers who are subject to full joint and several liability before grand juries of their peers. Well, that certainly certainly was the case in the 17th and 18th centuries where communities were dependent upon, you know, members of the community to be prepared to defend the community and therefore uh, be prepared by by having a weapon that they could bring with them, as well as you know, provisions, a horse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those are, it seemed to me, responsibilities of 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 being a member of the community. Uh, and we can we can. I'd love to have that conversation with you at some other time in more depth. But let me move on uh, in our discussion of Martin Luther King, reminding everyone that his his perspectives are based on his perception of what a Christian is and what a Christian ought to to believe. Um, others may have a different view of what the the doctrine of Christianity says to them in terms of individual behavior and individual responsibility. But um, but that's 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 a discussion that requires a lot more uh, participation by people of different Christian feelings or beliefs than, than we're prepared to do tonight. Let me continue with what he had to say about what he expected of government and of the Lyndon Johnson administration at that time. He says, I propose specifically the creation of a national agency that shall provide a job to every person who needs work, young and old, white and Negro. I propose a job for everyone, not a promise to see if jobs can be found. And he continues. There cannot be social peace when a people have awakened to their rights and dignity and to the wretchedness of their lives simultaneously. If our government cannot create jobs, it cannot govern. It cannot have white affluence amid black poverty and have racial harmony. Well, I think King really understood that without the opportunity to earn a decent living, the social conflicts would only escalate into political turmoil and violence, and that would threaten the very life of the democracy that was potentially the promise of the United States as a society, a promise certainly not yet fulfilled then or even today. 
because the private sector had failed to deliver a full employment <laughs> economy, King called upon the federal government then to fill the void. He adds this, he says, we must develop a federal program of public works re retraining and jobs for all so that none black or white, white or black, will have cause to feel threatened. At the present time, thousands of jobs a week are disappearing in the wake of automation and other efficiency techniques. In an article he wrote for the Saturday Review during 1965, he acknowledged that racial and economic problems in the Northern states were far more serious than he had thought previously. His biographer, David Lewis writes, the illusion of freedom in the North had masked its hideous economic conditions. Matriarchal families whose morality was vitiated by perpetual dependence upon welfare programs, levels of unemployment, that had actually risen in the decades since Montgomery and agglutinations of the impoverished in substandard housing that few had that had few equivalents even in the South. Well, late in 1965, he arrives in Chicago to add strength to a coalition that was formed to take on Mayor Richard Daley and Chicago's very real racial and economic segregation. High on his list of priorities, was the terrible condition of rental housing units available to Chicago's poor and persons of color. King could feel gratified to some degree when in August of 1966, Chicago officials announced that $500, $500 million would be invested in 22 depressed areas of the city over the next couple of years. Moreover, after prolonged negotiations with Daly, an agreement was reached that promised an end to housing discrimination. I don't know what the current situation is in Chicago. I wonder if, if today it's as much racial or more economic in terms of discrimination, in terms of who lives in what neighborhoods. Uh, if anyone's from Chicago, maybe you can enlighten us on the current you know, situation there. Well, the methods learned from the Chicago campaign were significant, uh, King wrote. Uh, people were, were activated and up in arms protesting about slum conditions, whether in poor white areas or for poor black neighborhoods. So the nation was starting to develop a much stronger conscience. Uh, at least in certain parts of the nation. King said, for years, I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society. A little change here, a little change there. Now I feel quite differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values. Under circumstances of widespread discrimination in labor markets that face persons of color, they had little hope of better pay and working conditions. So King felt that unionization was one of the few responses that was available to them. He wrote, where Negroes are confined to the lowest paying jobs, they must get together to organize a union in order to have the kind of power that could enter into collective bargaining with their employers. His final book 
is also a statement of positions on raising the living standards of the poor among his fellow citizens. And again, it was titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And again, gets back to his basic theme of, of full employment. He says, we must create full employment or we must create incomes. I'll read that again because it's an important statement. I'm going to go into a little bit more. We must create full employment or we must create incomes. People must be made consumers by one method or the other. We realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. What King understood, I think, is that the existing system never achieved full employment, not in the 19th century, not in the 20th century, certainly not in the 21st century. Even without bigotry and prejudice, there would always be a large number of people left outside the mainstream. Faced with the same observation, the economist Milton Friedman argued for a negative income tax as a means of enabling people to obtain necessary goods with the minimum involvement of social engineering and government bureaucracy. In 1968, Friedman answered William F. Buckley Jr. on the merits of this proposal as follows. The proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need, rather than as is now by requiring them to come before a governmental official, detail all their assets and liabilities, and be told you can spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, etc., and then be given a handout. Economic expansion alone cannot do the job of improving the employment situation of Negroes. It provides the base for employment, but other things must be constructed upon it, especially if the tragic situation of youth is to be solved. In a booming economy, Negro youth are afflicted with unemployment as though in an economic crisis. They are the explosive outs outsiders of the American expansion. And, and try to put this, I'll try to put this into a little bit of a, of a historical perspective as I see it evolving. So he's looking at a world where, where people have, have largely left the land to work in the cities. And, and certainly with the Second World War, that was the case with 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 uh, persons of color from the South moving to the cities in the North and creating opportunity, but also a lot of conflict, racial conflict and conflict between working class whites and blacks. Has, as he observes, the problems has all, have always been a lot more acute in the sections of our cities where those neighborhoods are predominantly poor households. People are living at the margin and they're, you know, the tensions are, are obviously greater. And of course, in many cities, the number of Afri African-Americans living in sections with few employers has always been the greatest. So those who left the agricultural sections of the country who might've been sharecroppers came to the cities to live and work, continuing to be sharecroppers, but with a different sort of landlord, the slumlord the absentee owner of tenements. Adults found their way into low-wage jobs, 
but the unskilled youth were simply left out altogether. And this is something that really worried Martin Luther King Jr. about what was going to happen to the young. He writes, depressed living standards for Negroes are not simply the consequence of neglect, nor can they be explained by the myth of the Negro's innate incapacities or by more sophisticated rationalization of his acquired infirmities, family disorganization, poor education, etc. They are a structural part of the economic system of the United States. Certain industries are based on a supply of low-paid, underskilled, and immobile non-white labor. So the challenge that he saw was to identify the structural flaws in the nation's economic system and press for changes in law. Now, we, many of us who are joining me tonight, you know, are familiar with Henry George's you know, program. And we believe strongly that, that what Henry George offered the world were systemic reforms. And that had they been adopted, a lot of this discussion might have you know, not taken place because the problems would have been solved. For the poor living in American cities, however, few owned any land or even a house. And, and as I have just stated in a very real sense, they were and are urban sharecroppers, sharing a good portion of their wages, what they earned, even though those wages might not be substantial, with the landlords uh, owning the properties where they had to find a place of residence. In his famous April 1967 speech at the Riverside Church in New York City, he made a damning indictment of a budgetary imbalance that continues to this day, the one we are struggling with, of course, with how to resolve a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is, approaches, is approaching spiritual death. And toward the end of his, his book, he adds this. I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. And that's that's the final stage in his thinking. The problem with this measure, I, I've mentioned this before, and, and um, I think some of you are already agreeing with, in agreement with me. The problem is similar to the negative income tax proposed by Milton Friedman. Now, King can be forgiven for failing to see the outcome, I think. Friedman, the economist, should have thought through the issue more thoroughly. Increase the household incomes broadly without increasing the supply of housing, and most of the increase in disposable income ends up in the pockets of landlords. This is just the way our system operates today because of the undertaxation of land and the overtaxation of 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 housing and other property improvements. At minimum, government would need to construct millions of new housing units priced to be affordable to lower income households and, and kept affordable by government mandate. That I see is the big weakness of the universal basic income, that it will end up resulting in higher rents and higher costs of, of housing for low and moderate income households. 
by the time King writes his final book, a large portion of the residential sections of many U.S. cities looked like this. They were crumbling from age and neglect. Housing that was built in the early 1900s, meant to last 25 or 30 years, was still being occupied you know, 70 or 80 years later and without, without the kind of, of investment in ongoing maintenance and systems replacement that's required to keep a property you know, and, and functional use. Well, King was working hard to get people to Washington in 1968. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference initiated the Poor People's Campaign, and King stood with them there. As he prepared to join their march on Washington, he added his voice to those calling for an economic bill of rights. Again, he called for guaranteed employment for all willing and able to work, a living income for those not able to work, and an end to discrimination in the access to decent, affordable housing, as well as the integration of the nation's schools. In Richard Leischer's 1995 biography titled The Preacher King, here's what Leischer says about King's ideas. Martin Luther King was the last of the great liberals in America to identify the purposes of social reform with those of Christianity. He routinely cast a struggle for civil rights in terms of light and darkness, good and evil, and the two kingdoms. In an article in Look Magazine, just after he was murdered, he wrote this. We call our demonstration a campaign for jobs and income because we feel that the economic question is the most crucial that Black people and poor people generally are confronting. There is a literal depression in the Negro community. When you have mass unemployment in the Negro community, it is called a social problem. When you have mass unemployment in the white community, it's called a depression. The fact is, there is a major depression in the Negro community. The unemployment rate is extremely high, and among Negro youth, it, it goes up as high as 40% in some cities. I don't know what the current statistics are, but I, I'm sure that the unemployment rate among Negro Black youth, persons of youth of, per, of color, is probably higher than, than white. But maybe someone else knows that for sure. So to summarize what I believe I've learned in this examination of King's positions on how to deal with poverty, he believed the government is there to ensure that all persons have access to what the philosopher Mortimer Adler called the goods of a decent human existence. In his experience, the system almost, the system almost everyone chooses to call capitalism fails to deliver the goods. Therefore, the system had to be changed and government had to intervene on behalf of those at the margin. King embraced democracy but a social democracy distinct from social Darwinism defended by some who stand right of center. Unfortunately, like most of his contemporaries who cared deeply about ending poverty, he apparently did not fully grasp the extent to which privilege dictates economic outcomes in our country, or perhaps more accurately, he had not yet recognized some of the most powerful forms of entrenched privilege that plague our society. To be sure, I think his struggles 
help to lessen privilege based on race or the color of one's skin. We see that, you know, across our society today. Every day we observe all, how other forms of privilege continue to threaten our very democracy and stand in the way of a society built on equality of opportunity. As have many before and since, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life in an effort to help change the course of history. And so the struggle continues and to some has even intensified in the years of King's life and since his death. And with that, I end. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.